Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charm Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter 8, Crashing into Adulting. Within weeks of arriving in Southern California, the stress began building. I started partying with some co-workers in their mid-20s, but staying up all night and drinking wasn't helping my depression. The relationship with my mom was stressful, constantly feeling judged and not good enough. She Bible-thumped continuously, telling me I needed to be saved. My sister lived in Huntington Beach with her new baby and husband. I called her on a Friday when I had lost hope of a decent future. Sharing my thoughts of just wanting to die, she told me to check myself into a mental hospital voluntarily. I looked up to her, so I did. Unsure of what to expect at a mental hospital, I thought I'd be with kids my age. I was 18, but I looked like I was 12. Due to policy, the hospital explained they had to admit me to the adult ward that Friday evening. In short order, I was registered as a patient and escorted to a shared room. I hadn't eaten that day, but wasn't hungry after the whirlwind of activity. Before my sister left, she handed me a pack of marble lights, saying I should smoke them because I would need them. She wasn't wrong. Since I was on a 72-hour suicide watch, all my personal belongings were taken from me, except the cigarettes and lighter. I entered my room to find an Asian woman on the other bed. In my estimation, she was close to my mom's age. She didn't say hello or even look up from the book she was reading. The nurse who escorted me to my room told me I could smoke outside if I needed to. She just left me there without taking me on a tour of the ward. I slowly walked through the TV room where many patients were drugged, unresponsive, or babbling incoherently. Immediately, I was struck by a heavy weight of dark emotions ranging from sadness to rage. Eerie, the room felt thick, yet sterile. What had I done? I wanted to run out of there so badly, but now I was stuck for the next few days. I began to have an anxiety attack, quickly going outside to make use of the marble lights. It took me a few puffs to stop coughing since I wasn't a smoker. Thankfully, it was quiet outside. The energy was lighter, and I was left alone. Hours passed before sunset. I finally went inside to sleep. Waking up in the mental hospital Saturday morning with no clue where the cafeteria was or what time meals were served, I made my way out to the smoker's haven. Bored, I tried going into the TV room a few times, but the patients scared me. Finally, I laid down to take a nap to try and forget where I was. 
The psychiatrist was off until Monday, so as far as I knew, I was to sit until suicide watch was over. My Asian roommate was reading the Bible aloud, sounding quite irritated. Some of the things I heard her say reminded me too much of my mom. I couldn't take it. I went back out to the smoker's picnic table where I stayed the whole day. As I sat and smoked, my mind was filled with things like, you're not crazy. These people are crazy. I was so terrified of the craziness that I deemed myself sane. I couldn't wait to see the doctor to get out of that place and go home. Starving, tired, and chilled, I made my way inside around dinner time. I still hadn't been told about meals or shown where the cafeteria was. Rather than chase down a nurse, I went to my bed. I laid down for a few minutes before a nurse and two big dudes dressed in white barged into the room. They grabbed me, one by each arm, and walked through another doorway. Next thing you know, I'm in a solitary confinement room in the teen ward. I was screaming, panicked, unsure of what was happening or why. They stripped and cavity searched me, looking for something. I felt violated and threatened. No one bothered explaining what was happening. They just kept yelling at me to cooperate. I hadn't been eating much. My weight had dropped to 80 pounds. Struggling with these men as hard as I could wasn't working. I went limp, collapsing on the rubber mattress. Finally, they left my room. All I heard as the door closed and locked was that I would stay in solitary for the night. There was just a rubber bed, no pillow, blanket, or sheets. Outside my room, I could see young teenage faces looking through the small window like I was an animal in a cage. Everyone wanted to know who got stuck in solitary. I rolled over, back to the window, and cried. Somehow, I found myself caught in a nightmare. I had come to get help I wanted so badly, for someone to tell me what to do to feel better. I wanted someone to tell me what was wrong with me. I had hoped this hospital stay would be my salvation. But laying there, feeling violated, raped, and betrayed, I knew this wasn't the solution. I had no way to call my sister, and no one else knew I was here. I prayed God would just let me die and go to heaven before I finally drifted off to sleep. Morning arrived with the nurse opening the door to solitary confinement. She said I was being put back in my room. She explained that a spoon went missing in the cafeteria the night before, and my roommate accused me of taking it. I was furious as I broke into tears. I told her I hadn't been shown the cafeteria and hadn't eaten since Friday night. She then informed me the spoon was found a few hours earlier under my roommate's bed. I wanted to slap the nurse in the face. Instead, I asked for my smokes and ran out to the smoking table. For the next half hour, I chain smoked, trying to stop the tears. Anger eventually took over. I marched to the nurse's station demanding to get released. The nurses said I couldn't leave since I was under suicide watch. I begged, 
pleading that I was a voluntary admission. Nothing swayed them. I was to wait until the psychiatrist saw me in the morning. Defeated again, I walked outside to the only place I could be alone, the smoker table. My head was spinning, my emotions ragged, my body drained. Monday finally arrived, and with it, a visit with the psychiatrist. No one had apologized for the cavity search or solitary confinement. I demanded as calmly as I could to be released. He looked shocked that I hadn't eaten for days. I told him after being there, I knew I wasn't that bad off. I wasn't crazy. It was clear that my roommate, who reminded me so much of my mother I was trying to escape, had problems. Not me. He said if I left, it would be AMA, against medical advice, since they hadn't treated me. I told him I would find a counselor just to let me go home. He signed my discharge papers, AMA, and within hours, I was out. When I got in my car to leave, all he wanted to do was go to the beach. Thankfully, it was close to my mom's house, so I made my way there. As an empath, the ocean was the only place I felt somewhat at peace. The following week, I began counseling with a nice woman. She encouraged me to find a room to rent and leave mom's house. Within weeks, I was living on my own for the first time. I traded a secretary job for waitressing, which afforded a decent lifestyle. I began making new friends and having fun for the first time in forever. I continued in counseling for as long as I could afford, maybe three months. Then, the counselor said one magical thing to me that changed my perspective. If you met your mom on the street and she treated you the way she does now, would you go to lunch with her? Would you be friends with her? No way, I said. Then she held my hand, looking directly into my eyes, and said, Then why do you think you have to now? I sat for a moment and contemplated that question. Then finally, light bulbs went off in my head. I didn't have to do anything with her anymore. She was never a mother to me. Why pretend any different? It was the first time I had permission to stay away from her. I found a great deal in the paper as a first-time renter, sharing a house with a lifeguard and a medical student. We all had busy schedules and kept to ourselves for the most part. The lifeguard and I became friends our rooms right next to each other at the front of the house. The walkway to the front door was dark. The porch light constantly burned out. So we gave up replacing it. Instead, I started leaving my bedroom window unlocked, entering and exiting through it. Life was calming down a little as I got comfortable being on my own. One night, hanging out with a friend, I sat on my bed and mentioned how the house felt a little strange. There was no living room furniture, and none of us went into the kitchen. He said there was nothing odd about that. I explained the light bulb issue on the porch and how I hated going to the bathroom at night. It always felt like someone was watching me. The other room next to mine was empty when I moved in, aside from a mirror I took for my room. Although the medical student in charge of the house 
advertised, no one would rent that room out. I told my friend about waking up feeling like someone was staring at me, and the heavy mirror gave me the creeps. He laughed at me, telling me to put it back and stop letting my imagination get the best of me. At the time, the freeway killer had just murdered someone miles from our house. He told me I was paranoid. Just then, the doorbell rang with the pizza delivery. Startled, we both went to the door to get the pizza. Returning to my room, pizza in hand, I stood in the doorway with my mouth wide open, unable to take a step. My friend nudged me forward and asked why I was so afraid. The borrowed mirror was now in front of my dressing table, leaning against it. Before we left the room, it was on top of the table, with several picture frames in front of it. No one else was home, so how the hell did that mirror end up leaning against the front of the table, on the floor, without any of my picture frames knocked over. I was frantic and shaking. He was a little freaked out, too. We stared at the mirror, the table, and the picture frames, trying to figure out how it fell off the dressing table without a sound or without knocking any pictures over. Finally, he grabbed the big mirror, put it back in the vacant room next door, and slam the door. He calmed me down as we ate our pizza and watched a movie. Without reason, I hated being in the living room or walking past the bedroom next to mine. I tried to avoid it as much as possible, but I had to use the front door now that a serial killer was on the loose. The freeway killer had entered his victim's home through an open window. All the women in the area were terrified, including me. Thankfully, the lease expired, my roommates were moving, and I could leave the spooky house for good. I found another room for rent, reasonably close. When I returned to the house to retrieve my security deposit, I found the landlord painting the living room. I asked if he had ever felt anything weird in the house. I told him what happened, saying it probably sounded crazy. He admitted that a man had died in the vacant room just before we rented the house. He said his wife hated that place, too, and she always felt like someone was watching her. In some ways, it was a relief to know I wasn't crazy, but it freaked me out in other ways. Was it some angry ghost? Was it mad I took the mirror? I was happy never to have to return to the house again. Since suppressing my psychic gifts at a young age, I didn't want anything to do with the supernatural. Not long after moving, I stopped getting counseling. Work was going well, and I was out on my own. I even had a boyfriend. While he was moving back east, I felt good and had hope for the future. Financially stable, I began to search for a horse to lease. I knew I couldn't afford to buy one, but... I could afford to lease one. Within a couple of weeks, I came across an ad in the paper to lease a quarter horse. For whatever reason, I couldn't let that ad go. A woman police officer was looking for someone to take care of him. She seemed super nice on the phone, so we arranged to meet at the stables to meet her horse, Quincy. I fell in love with him the minute I set eyes on him. 
She gave me very little info, except that he was the grandson of a famous quarter horse named Sir Quincy's Dan. Quincy's full name was Sir Quincy's Dunn. She warned he was a little hyper, but just needed someone to ride him. I jumped at the chance to lease him, paying just his boarding fees. Two weeks after I signed the lease, I only had the opportunity to ride him twice. We had been caught in a cycle of rain, causing flooding in the arena. All I could do was sit in his stall and pet him. The first day it dried out, I was struck with a strong desire to ride, even though it was a work day. Impulsively, I called in sick to work and headed to the barn. After being cooped up for two weeks, Quincy was ready to run. I turned him out in the arena to burn some energy before riding. No one else was at the stables, aside from the laborers who cleaned stalls and fed. I quickly bridled him, not bothering to use a saddle, and hopped on bareback. It felt good to be on him. The time we had spent together in his stall, bonding, was good for us. He seemed to trust and like me. We cruised in the arena at a trot when Quincy spooked at something downhill in the brush on the riverbed side. Quincy bolted in a panic at a full-blown gallop. I was barely holding on, trying desperately to stop him. I tried to pull his face into the wooden railing of the arena to slow him down. Before I knew what was happening, I slipped between him and the fence, hitting the base of my skull on the railing as I went down. In his panic to get to safety, Quincy stepped on my left hip. I wasn't sure what had happened. All I knew, I was on the ground with Quincy's face dripping blood on me. When I tried to get up, I instantly went unconscious. I regained consciousness with a crowd of EMTs talking to me and a small group of onlookers that weren't there before. I remember watching the resident horse trainer grab Quincy and return him to a stall. The EMTs were trying to assess how badly I was hurt. They noticed the hoof print in my Levi's, the pocket ripped out, and the blood that Quincy had dripped over me. I remember them cutting my clothes off in the dirt to see if I was bleeding internally, hence sliding a board under me while stabilizing my neck with a brace. I don't remember much from there, aside from waking up in the trauma unit of the hospital. Lesson number one. Don't call in sick to work if you plan to do something dangerous. Lesson number two. If you do go riding on a horse you barely know, use a saddle. I suffered a fractured skull and hip, left iliac crest, with bruising down my hip, thigh, and back, along with a severe concussion. The doctors wanted to put a metal pin in my hip to make sure it healed properly. I was totally against having metal in my body. I denied the surgery and asked when I could go home. They kept me for a week, trying to convince me that I would never walk the same without the surgery. Donna, Quincy's owner, came to see me after hearing what happened. She apologized profusely, explaining he was abused and had broken her leg the year before. She offered to sign his papers over for free if I still wanted to ride, as long as I agreed not to sue her. Suing her was not even on my mind. 
I was overjoyed at the chance to own him. So I said yes. She signed over the ownership papers and left me the lock to his tax shed, relinquishing all his gear. I was ecstatic. When my doctor checked on me that evening, I asked when I could ride again. He blandly replied, when you can walk again, you can ride again. The doctor seemed surprised. I still wanted to ride and wasn't sure I would walk without the surgery. Within a few days, I was released from the hospital with crutches and a prescription for physical therapy. On my way home from the hospital, I went to visit Quincy. He was visibly depressed. He had stitches from the cuts on his nose, but the wound hadn't healed totally. A few people told me he hadn't been the same since that day. The trainer explained that it was common for mountain lions to come up the hill towards the arena. The consensus was that a mountain lion spooked him the day of the accident. She was surprised I wasn't upset at him for the accident. I told her, I thought, he could be a great horse once he trusted someone. She agreed and said she was happy he found his proper owner in me. I entered Quincy's stall. He had his eyes on me the whole time, waiting and watching from the rear of the pen. Crutches and all, I stood staring at him, talking to him in my head, telling him I was happy to see him. I sent in images of me petting him. Within seconds, he walked over, lowered his head, waiting for me to rub between his ears. From that moment on, we were best friends. Walking took some time to master. The nerves in my left hip were shot, leaving my hip and thigh numb. After about a month, I was able to walk without the crutches. Within two months, I was back at the stables ready to ride. Quincy had earned the label Trouble Horse. Everyone was afraid of him. He was intelligent, big, and very fast. He had the reputation of dumping his riders whenever he had the chance. After hearing about the accident, a stunt trainer took me under his wing and began teaching me how to train and work with troubled horses. Both Quincy and I were recovering abuse victims. I was committed to helping him overcome his fears and past. Without realizing it, he was helping me too. Within six months, Quincy became a well-trained athlete. He had transformed from a scary, nutjob horse to an athlete. We began showing both English and Western in local C-rated shows. He was winning every class, gaining a lot of envy from other horse owners. We would play tag in the arena when he was turned out, free to run. I would run down the center of the arena, Quincy giving me a head start. As soon as I hit the middle, he would gallop past me, cutting me off so I would run right into him. Then he would prance off as if he won the game. We played like that daily for hours. No one could believe this was the same horse that broke my hip. We became so close, I could show up to see him during feeding time, and he would lay down next to me instead of eating. He showed me how to be brave, strong, and more importantly, how to forgive and trust. Quincy taught me countless lessons during our time together. 
the most important lesson I learned from him was that no matter how abused or how much people distrust you, there is always hope and the possibility of healing. Given the right amount of time, love, and patience, anyone can change. He also taught me to have fun, to play like a child, something I never learned. He showed me that physical wounds would take time to heal and leave scars. Emotional wounds are hard to see, but the scars are visible if you look closely at the behavior. Emotional scars can heal, but can be cut open without the proper care and attention. I had a lot of emotional scars and unhealed emotional wounds from childhood. Quincy's love and our relationship started the journey of healing that would take years to complete. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. Want some free resources? Well, join my Facebook community, a group of heart-centered, ambitious individuals just like you. Just go and visit the link in the description, or you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups, The Gold Factor. And remember, if you're enjoying the book so far, follow the podcast, leave a review. I really appreciate it as we're launching and growing the podcast and share it on social media. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day. Be blessed and be a blessing.